and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm Jonathan Carl, Chief White House Correspondent for ABC News. And I'm Rick Klein, Political Director at ABC, and I'm coming to you live from Cleveland, where I've uh, been looking at the workspace and the Quicken Loans Arena, the site of this summer's Republican National Convention. John, it's quiet here. It's strange, the quiet. I've been hearing all this talk about chaos and contested conventions, but everything's very orderly. I, I think I think the Republicans won't have any problems at all. What do you think? I'm sure it's going to stay just like that through July, Rick. No problem at all. <laughs> it's a great time for you to be in Cleveland because this is the week that I think it was solidified that we are highly likely, if not virtually certain, to see at least an open convention where we go into the convention and no candidate has a, uh, has a locked-in majority of, of committed delegates. I think that's right. Wisconsin's results make that uh, more likely than ever. And I'll tell you, Republican officials here are privately conceding. That's by far the likeliest scenario. They're doing all sort of of contingency planning for it. Uh, A lot of this is just figuring it out on the fly. A lot of folks don't understand the rules, including top Republican officials, including campaign people. They don't understand how it would even work if you go in with no one having a majority. But that is the scenario we have, given the this stunning uh, and lopsided victory by Ted Cruz in Wisconsin. Uh, we should also note on the Democratic side, there's more talk about an open convention on that side. That's the threat from Bernie Sanders right now. He's saying that if unless Hillary Clinton clinches a majority among pledge delegates, that uh, his campaign will consider that to be an open convention. So we could have back-to-back open conventions after not having anything like this for at least four decades. We could get a... Uh, a cornucopia of open conventions, more than we ever bargained for, John. And today on Powerhouse Politics, we're going to talk to people that are preparing for precisely that scenario. We're going to be joined by Jeff Rowe, campaign manager for Ted Cruz, and somebody who has been quietly working the delegates, uh, preparing for this moment, I think, a lot longer than most of us even realized. And also Jeff Weaver, the campaign manager for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And, you know, I I tell you, listening to Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton go back and forth over the last last day or so – You get the sense that they're taking a page out of the Republican playbook. (laughs) Yeah, they must be paying attention to what's going on on the other side. You had Bernie Sanders do something this week that you you try not to do if you're running in a primary, which is to say that your opponent is flat out not qualified. There's a lot of things you can say about your opponent. He's bad on this. He's good for this. He's he's going to you know hurt the economy, hurt foreign policy. He's naive, inexperienced. But when you say flat out that that person is not qualified, it makes things complicated. It makes things complicated for your supporters whom are going to, we're going to need to support the, the Democratic nominee at the end. And what an awkward thing if Bernie Sanders indeed has to end up endorsing Hillary Clinton, uh, casting, uh, having having his, his delegates cast ballots for her at the convention, to be on record saying, I don't believe Hillary Clinton is qualified. What's more, the standards that he put out for qualification would mean that Barack Obama himself is unqualified. He also uh, supported some of these trade deals. Um, you note that uh, John Kerry voted for the Iraq war, which means maybe he's disqualified for secretary of state. So going there opens up a whole can of worms. You know, it's it's remarkable. This comes right after Hillary Clinton had that, that great moment on the rope line where uh, she was confronted about the uh, contributions, campaign contributions to her super PAC from oil and gas companies and those tied to oil and gas companies. And she said, I am so sick of the Sanders campaign lying about my record. Well, I mean, lying. I mean, this. So, look, the Democratic contest has been a genteel affair compared to the Republican contest, no doubt. But now you have back to back the accusation of lying, the accusation of back and forth of who's qualified or not qualified uh, to be president. It's really, uh, you know, if we weren't so immersed in the, the absolute insanity going on on the Republican side, I, I think we'd be kind of blown away by this rep- by this Democratic contest. 
We would, we would. But the Republicans are, are quite fun these days as well. And now the turn to New York, you know, everyone suddenly loves New York. We remember what Ted Cruz said all those many months ago about New York values. Well, he's touring Matza factories now. Uh, in, he wants in, to uh, wake up in, in a city boroughs. that never sleeps. Uh, to, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And of course, Donald Trump, he's back home, you know, packing in a big rally on Long Island. And, uh, and uh, you know, this is this now emerges as a, as a key contest. You know, we talked about so much about this this strange political year, but you have this weird thing coming up in, in a week and a half's time where the New York primary, that's a home game for both the Democratic frontrunner and the Republican frontrunner. But they happen at a time when neither of them has looked weaker. So they need to you know, not just win, but overperform back in their home states. It's an opportunity. Um, but as you know, you know from baseball, if you lose the first game uh, and you, you lose home field advantage, you look extremely vulnerable in the rest of that series. So tons riding on this suddenly, uh, even though this should be relatively safe turf for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I don't think that Ted Cruz has ever campaigned in a in a matzah factory before. I think this is, I think this is new territory. But you know, the matzah business is tough business. You remember a while back when there was a major antitrust case, uh, charges of illegal monopoly and, and 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 collusion and price controls on the part of the major matzah manufacturers in the United States. This is tough business, Rick. Well, it's also, I mean, it's also tough business in terms of uh, hydration. If you're eating too much matzah, I don't know if you've had this problem, John. Uh, as a, as, a, as, a, as a Gentile, but I'll tell you, there are certain brands of matzah that can dry you out pretty fast, so they got to be careful to make sure they properly hydrate on the campaign trail. As long as they agree to stop by Katz's Deli and have a <laughs> sandwich, I think we're in good shape. So let, let's turn to our first guest. We have uh, Jeff Rowe, campaign manager for Ted Cruz, really probably among the, the people who best understand what the rules are that govern a contested convention and how to use those rules uh, to, to aid his candidate. Uh, uh, Jeff, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Congrats on the, uh, the big victory in Wisconsin. Uh, so what do you think? Do you agree with us that that kind of solidifies that we are highly likely to see a, a contested convention? Well, I think the campaign should just be called and it'll all be over. I mean, we won Wisconsin. <laughs> what else do we need to do? There you go. There you go. <laughs> what, what do you guys need? <laughs> uh, I, no, I don't think so. I, there's a a month ago in Wisconsin. Well, not even a month ago. Three weeks ago on election day, we were down 11 points in Wisconsin in our own polling, and about 10 days out, we were down six. In a week out, we were up six, and we won on election day. You know, with whatever it was, 13, and so these. These elections are very dramatic and, and have dramatic swings, things that seem very conventional wisdom-oriented one day are completely turned upside down the next. And this campaign, every campaign is really like that, but you overlay the impact of what this campaign cycle has been like, and I don't think so at all. I mean, there's a lot of outstanding delegates. Obviously, people need different thresholds. We need, if you count bound or unbound, we need 85% which sounds like a dramatic number, except when you figure that most are winner-take-all. That's not a big percentage of the states that you have to win. I think it's we'd have to win a little over half of the states remaining. Uh, but it all comes down to California as well. And if you have a moment in California on the, before June 7th with 172 delegates at stake and you put a you know two-thirds whooping on somebody, uh, a lot of things can happen, so I don't think so. I, people are quick to just absolutely say we're going to to Cleveland. We're obviously that is a that is a potential, and we're preparing for that as well. 
but but it's, uh, this hasn't been played out at all, and so uh, I think there's still surprises left. So are you suggesting that Cruz could actually get to 1237 before Cleveland? Sure. sure. No, I, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm not I'm saying that. I suggest yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure the, the delta. Whatever delta is, I want to cross yeah. it. So, yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, now, now it is that, that is that is a scenario. As another scenario, is that Donald Trump could get there before the convention. Uh, it is certainly the most likely scenario that we could end up in a convention that neither that you know neither of us could make it. But there is a lot of ball left to be played here, and uh, and I don't. I, it's still way in the realm of possibility that either one of us could make it prior to the convention. Now, your next big game, by the way, is an away game, uh, New York. <laughs> yeah, well, we're there today. We're play- It is an away game. I- I'm assuming Donald is very strong in his home state. Uh, if he doesn't win his home state, in fact, if he doesn't get you know, pretty close to over 50%, he's at 50% now. If he doesn't get over 50%, he should probably consider dropping out, like everyone else has when they don't win their home state in a, in a dramatic fashion. By the way, I don't uh, think that's going to happen, Jeff. You don't, you don't, don't think so? Take the advice, right? Okay, all right, well. Uh, he didn't take anybody's advice, so I'm sure he won't take mine. Um, so yeah, no, it's a away game. We have a uh, there's there are p- places in New York where they're very advantageous for us. We were in the Bronx yesterday. There are a lot of what we call orphan districts. There are districts that have very small Republican uh, Republican participation in primaries, and and we're participating in those areas. We're but we're campaigning coast to coast. We don't think I get this question often. And it's somewhat uncomfortable at the time that I get it. I think on reflection, it makes more sense to people. But I don't believe you can be the candidate for the entire country if you can't go compete for votes all over the country. I, I, it's a misnomer to me that you would ever write places off. So we're, we compete aggressively everywhere. New York's part of that. And, of course, Donald's a huge favorite. Uh, John Kasich is, is probably has one of his strongest areas of the country, is where liberals and moderates vote. He's the liberal candidate in the race. There's a lot of liberals in, in New York, so he'll do very well there. So we're not taking anything for granted. We're going to go compete for every vote, make them work for it, and I think we'll, you know, hopefully we'll come out with a pretty good cut of the delegates there. Jeff, uh, now you've, you've explained to us why, why you have Senator Cruz eating matzah uh, at a matzah factory. But <laughs> That's right. If, if you could go back now a couple of months, the, the New York values attack seemed very effective at the time to crystallize that attack. Do you wish you could have those words back? I mean, when when he said that, did you ever even imagine that New York would be as critical as it is to the process? Oh, sure. Well, well, I guess under that analysis, I probably should have said Puerto Rico values because we didn't get any of those delegates. So <laughs> right. maybe that maybe that would have been a little more comfortable. But no, I think people know, and and, and people are going to spin it. And Donald had his moment at the debate when he talked about it. People know what New York values mean, and it's a it's a the rest of the country. And, and their own kind of media universe way lives through what New York lives through. And so in the past few years, when you're talking about gun control and you're talking about not being fair to cops and not having their back, and we're talking about big gulp sodas and smoking and everything else that they go through, then with the whole country lives that. And the whole country rolls their eyes. And by the way, when I mean the whole country, I mean Syracuse and Buffalo and Albany. I mean, there and and parts of New York roll their eyes, and it's a big city, liberal ran government that does some, a lot of crazy stuff, and their values are not in touch there as they are in other places. There's not a there's you know for 
like it or not, there's not a de Blasio in West Virginia. There's not a there's not a um, Ed Rendell doesn't have anything to do with 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 Cuomo. I mean, there are different creatures. The liberals there are different creatures, and that's what he was talking about, and that's what we made clear. And Donald Trump has funded all those people. Man, I can't believe. I just can't imagine writing a check. I mean. I, I just can't, as a Republican primary voter myself, I just can't imagine somebody voting for somebody that's written a check to Hillary Clinton <laughs> in any environment, but certainly not for president. So let's move on to the, the nitty-gritty yeah. of, of the delegate selection process, which, of course, is different than the uh, the delegate, delegate allocation progress. But actually choosing those people that are going to be on the floor of, of, the, uh, of the convention, about – 200 of them, right, uh, coming into the, uh, on the, even on the very first ballot, are actually uncommitted. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's roughly right. Yep. So what, what are you doing to get those votes? I mean, it, it's not inconceivable that, that, that Trump could come into, uh, well, maybe even Cruz, under your scenario, could come into Cleveland, uh, you know, roughly 200 or 150 short of 1237. How do you go after those those uncommitted delegates, and what are you already doing with them? Well, there's a couple things. So there's 1,500. There's Well, let me do a couple data points for you. April 9th, this Saturday, and April 16th, next Saturday, there'll be, there'll be more delegates apportioned than there were on Super Tuesday. And it's big, big election days. Keep in mind, we spent as collectively as a, as a group of candidates – $772 million competing for 30 unbound delegates in Iowa. We spent collectively, as a group of candidates, $54,000 competing for 28 unbound delegates in North Dakota. Hmm. So it's staggering. It, it's staggering the different approach. We spent, of that 54000 that you could really publicly track, we spent 52 of it. Um, so the delegate portion is, is, is really relevant to a very few people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be putting so much emphasis in kind of misappropriated places. So just a bit on the process, you have delegates that are apportioned by the results of their state election, and that's done in a hundred different ways. We'd spend a whole podcast talking about that. Yeah. Then the second piece of it then is where you actually have a delegate selection event. And there's been about 49 delegate selection events to date. So to kind of rewind it in history, Romney was announced as the winner of the Iowa caucus. Santorum, 29 days later, was announced the real winner. And then at the convention, I think it was 26 of the 30 voted for Ron Paul for president. So they had a delegate selection event because I was unbound after the election, and the Ron Paul folks took control of the of the slate, ran their delegates, and won the election. And it created an entire process by which Romney <laughs> decided to stop letting that happen. And they had fights on conventions in state and local district conventions all over the country. And to a degree, uh, Romney killed a, you know, killed a fly with a with a shotgun, and and put put it to bed and got the delegates reserve they needed. So essentially, what we're seeing play out along along these along these lines 
is that people go to their state and local convention floors and vote for people to be delegates to the national convention. I was a delegate last time. I had to run at my county level. I then ran at the, at the district level. There are competing slates. I am a participant in politics, so I got on a lot of people's slates. And then I was carried to victory by on one of the slates, and then I was a delegate. So we're doing that exact process. There are slates. Take North Dakota last week, for, for instance. We had a slate of cruise delegates. The state party, which is typically tradition in, in, in North Dakota, had a, delega- had a slate of delegates. And on that slate, there were 11 known cruise people. There were six likely lean cruise people, but not yet identified. There was one Trump. There was one Kasich. And there were, I think, whatever the balance is, uncommitted. The governor's wife, things like that. So, Jeff, so, before we let you go, uh, yeah. we know that there are bound delegates to the convention. Uh, what portion of bound delegates for Trump do you think will actually end up being Cruz supporters on a second ballot? Oh, I think that's kind of – we're only – of the 1,500 delegates – so just take it today. We only know – there's been – there's been uh, the number's a little bit higher now, so it's about 1,600 but 1,700 delegates apportioned, and we only know the names of 900 of them. And half of those are alternates. So that it's way too early for me to speculate on what that would be like. But right now, we only have about 500, maybe, maybe 600 now after North Dakota. We only have 600 people whose names we know out of what's going to be a, you know, a 2,500-person process. So I think it's way too early. But certainly what happens, the institutional advantages that we have, is that we're a Republican. And and Mr. Trump has not ever participated in Republican politics. And so we're a Republican. Grassroots activists tend to support Republicans. And we're a conservative. Mr. Kasich's a liberal to moderate. And they typically don't aren't aren't engaged in the process. So we have an institutional advantage without a, without question. And then because we ran a campaign that was organized from the grassroots level, then we have an additional advantage, not institutional, because it wasn't there for us to when we started, but we created an advantage by running a campaign in all 50, 50 states and, and additional territories. And so we have relationships of 284,000 volunteers spread across the country. We would only need 1% of them to be delegates, and we'd be okay. And, and I assume, because I saw your operation in Iowa, and I saw how you went, you know, street by street. You had, you had, you knew exactly who you had to go after uh, in, in Iowa. This is a much smaller universe, uh, l- l- less than twenty five hundred delegates that are going to potentially decide who the Republican nominee is. Uh, I, I assume you will have the names. You will have information about each and every one of them. You'll know who's decided, who's not decided, who's leaning where, who can be gotten. And those, and those delegates that are to be gotten, I, I imagine, will be treated very well in Cleveland. Yeah, I think it's uh, safe to assume all those things. There is a care and feeding that goes along with the process of, of people that are supporting you. There are less undecideds in this because they're activists. They've been, you don't tell an activist who to support for president. Right. You, you allow them to, to get to know the candidate. And, and we've done that from the very beginning, almost awkwardly used our time in individual unique settings a year ago with people. When other people were having major mega rallies or hunkered in a phone booth raising money, we were having 15 and 20 and 100-person and events with Ted 
all over the country. We just had a meeting in California with at a, at a critical time leading into Wisconsin, where, by the way, we got some grief for not being in Wisconsin. We went to California. We did Jimmy Kimmel. We raised some dough. And we had a grassroots event in California with 125 people. No press. We've been doing this as a campaign since the very beginning. And we believe that is so we have an institutional advantage because people that support us participate in politics. But then we have a structural advantage in the fact the way we construct our campaign was from the grassroots up, not from the top down. All right, Jeff Rowe with the Ted Cruz campaign. I look forward to uh, to having you back on Powerhouse Politics, talking more as this process goes forward. Uh, truly um, in, in incredible uh, that we're at this uh, at this point, and we still don't know who well over half of those delegates are going to be that may choose the nominee. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Uh, Rick, we, 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 this is um, uh, just, just an incredibly arcane process, and, and I, I wonder if uh, it, it just makes you realize that if there is truly a contested convention and these delegates on the floor um, who are chosen in a way that it, for most of them is, is completely separate from the way their states actually uh, chose a presidential candidate, it's, it's really um, – <laughs> I don't know what we're going to be in for. It's unbelievable. I mean, and, you know, we've looked into the laws and the regulations that surround all of this, and there are, you know, there, there are a few limits to, functionally as to what you can do to woo a delegate. And, and John, there's a possibility that, um, you know, after all the fund ends in Cleveland, we'll be right back here in Philadelphia the next week. We're here and talk about a contested convention on the Democratic side as well. Yeah, I think we should try to reach out right now to somebody who would know a lot about that, uh, maybe like Jeff Weaver. Is Jeff Weaver on the line? I sure am. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for joining us, Jeff Weaver, campaign manager for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And we did hear uh, uh, Sanders now uh, talking about the idea of taking this campaign right to the convention in Philadelphia. That would be the Democratic convention. Are we really no, talking about potentially a, an open, contested convention in Philadelphia? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. The way, I mean, the way the math is right now, it is very, very, very unlikely that either candidate will arrive at the convention with enough pledge delegates uh, to win the nomination. And so we're all going to arrive there. And there are superdelegates, obviously, in the Democratic process, which is uh, different than the Republican process. Uh, but those people are not pledged uh, when they get there, and they can vote however they want. So when we arrive in uh, Philadelphia uh, this summer, uh, we're going to arrive with two candidates, neither of which have enough pledged delegates to win uh, the nomination outright. So there will certainly be a, uh, an open convention on the Democratic side. What makes you think that those superdelegates who have been so solidly for Hillary Clinton since before Bernie Sanders even got into the race, what makes you think that suddenly they're going to change their minds and vote Sanders? Well, I think if you look at the, the complexion of the race right now, uh, Bernie Sanders has won seven of the last eight contests uh, all across the country. Uh, these superdelegates, you know, they're largely made up of elected officials, uh, members of Congress, the Senate governors, uh, and party uh, you know, officials. Uh, these people want to win. That's what they want to do in November. And I think as we go forward and demonstrate the Bernie Sanders' strength uh, in this uh, Democratic nominating process, uh, including his overwhelming strength with independent voters who are going to be critical to winning in November, uh, coupled, coupled with now, which is months-long, consistent polling that shows Bernie Sanders does much better against all the Republicans than does Hillary Clinton uh, in head-to-head -head, uh, matchups. Uh, you know, when we get to that point, uh, these superdelegates, I think, are going to take another look at Bernie Sanders because they really want to win in November, and he's the, he's the candidate that can help them win. So, so, Jeff, help us understand. So are you saying that even if Hillary Clinton has more delegates 
more more pledge delegates secured and more votes than Bernie Sanders. If she doesn't go over the magic number, you guys will consider that to be an open convention and go through the roll call and be fighting for the votes. Oh, 100 percent, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I mean what we need to do in November is defeat the Republicans, and we need to elect Democrats not only to the White House uh, but up and down the ballot. And Bernie Sanders has demonstrated uh, that he energizes. Uh, people, he's brought out, you know, millions of young people who would not otherwise participate. Uh, he's widely popular with independents, generally in the Democratic primary and, and, and caucuses. He wins 70 percent or more of independent voters. And in November, you know, only about 25 percent of the voting population are Democrats. So Democrats don't win unless they can create a coalition uh, with independent voters. And we've seen even with Democratic leaning independents, you know, those who participate in the Democratic primary process, uh, there's very, very, very little enthusiasm uh, for Secretary Clinton. So you can imagine if we were looking at a pool of independent voters that went beyond Democratic-leaning uh, voters, uh, independents, that her standing would be even less. Uh, and that, that should be cause uh, for people to be nervous. There was one thing that your candidate, that Senator Sanders, said this week that was quite provocative, eye-opening, headline-grabbing, to say that, uh, that, that he believes that Hillary Clinton is, quote, not qualified. To, to be president. Did he go too far? Was that a mistake in saying it? That's about as strong a statement as you can make about a candidate in a primary. Well, let's, let's be clear that this whole issue of quote-unquote qualification and disqualifying uh, was something that originated in the Clinton campaign. Uh, CNN reported uh, on uh, Wisconsin election night uh, that the Clinton campaign was adopting a new aggressive strategy that was described as disqualify him, defeat him, and reunite the party later. Uh, so this was an attack that was launched on their side. The Washington Post uh, had a, a story with the headline that the Clinton people were questioning uh, Bernie Sanders' qualifications. Uh, so this was something that was launched but, on but their side. But she never and said we, the words. I mean, to be clear, she never said, I do not believe that well, Bernie Sanders is qualified. Well, look, I went, to, I went to law school. I went to law school, too. I know how to say things without saying them. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, you, you get a lot of training on how to do that in law school. And uh, so clearly that was the attack. The Washington Post certainly picked up on it. CNN picked up on it. Um, everybody understands what was going on there. And, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that Bernie Sanders has run an issue-oriented campaign. There are obviously uh, very sharp differences between the candidates on a number of issues, which I'm happy to go through. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and what we want to do is, is continue to have an issue-oriented campaign. But, you know, if the Clinton campaign and the secretary want to have, you know, sharper elbows, um, that's fine. Bernie Sanders will campaign like a Brooklynite. So what happened with that New York Daily News interview? Because uh, it, it was it struck so many people that uh, you know even when asked questions at the core of his campaign, he seemed to uh, uh, you know be unable to come up with real specifics. Well, what's funny? What's funny? What's funny about that is you know we've gotten now over half a dozen uh, uh, articles, op-eds, and, and and pieces from uh, economists and academics, including the economists uh, who wrote Hillary Clinton's banking reform plan which said the problem really was is that the people at the New York Daily News didn't know what they were talking about. And, in fact, uh, Bernie Sanders outlined exactly what he was going to do, and the problem was that the questioners were confused about the various uh, regulatory branches of government, and so it made for a very confusing interview. But, I mean, I'm, that's not me. That's the guy who wrote Hillary Clinton's banking plan. So, um, uh, you know, he has a strong uh, plan to uh, break up the big banks. Uh, he is the only candidate who will break up the big banks. Let's be clear about that. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton has gotten millions and millions and millions of dollars from the financial uh, sector from Wall Street. You know, her super PAC last quarter reported $15 million uh, in money from Wall Street. There's certainly no way in the world, given that, that she's going to do anything to break up the big banks. So what? how does this play in New York? Obviously, the, the, the uh, financial 
center of the world, and, and that, that was driving a lot of these questions: what happens to these uh, to these New York-based banks, and what happens to those jobs? How, how do you see all this playing out? And and is is New York a must-win state for for either Sanders or Clinton? Well, let's talk about the first question first, which is uh, those jobs aren't going to go away. What we're talking about is breaking up the big banks so that there are, in fact, more banks, not fewer banks. Uh, so those jobs will all still be in New York. But it's a question of breaking up the political and economic power of these uh, giant uh, mega uh, Wall Street firms. So everybody who works on Wall Street or works in the financial sector, no one's talking about doing away with the financial sector, uh, but we are talking about doing away with the inordinate amount of uh, power and influence that they have over the political and economic uh uh, processes in this country. In terms so it's of, a job creation thing? I mean, there's actually more jobs in banking you well, you, as a result? There may, actually, there, there may actually, if you had more smaller banks, you may actually, in fact, create uh, more jobs in banking in this country. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why they claim that they uh, consolidate so much is so that they can shed jobs and become, quote-unquote, more efficient. But really what they mean by that is to become more powerful. Um, so, in fact, if you broke them up, you might, in fact, create more jobs. Um, in terms of New York State, look, New York State is the adopted home of uh, Secretary Clinton. Uh, Bernie, obviously, himself is a native son of New York. Um, you know, she represented uh, the state twice in the U.S. Senate, was elected there. She really has to win this state big in order to uh, have any any sort of credibility going forward to say that she is the sort of a dominant uh, candidate in this nominating a race. So, you know, Bernie Sanders got 86% of the vote in his home state uh, in Vermont. Um, I don't, I'm not saying she has to get 86% in New York, but she has to do very, very, very well. Uh, for us, uh, New York is not a must-win. There's no single state that's a must-win between now and the convention. Although, you know, we do have to win most of the states going forward. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, if we keep her either close or win outright, uh, I think it will be a major embarrassment for the uh, Clinton campaign and really uh, throw into question uh, whether she is going to be uh, a strong enough candidate in the fall to take on the Republicans. Jeff, do you think you could have done anything early in the process to prevent Hillary Clinton from taking on, to, from building up this enormous delegate lead. They've pointed back to the math over and over again, and it's not just in votes, but also in raw delegates. You look back at some of the strategic decisions, the places you decided not to play. Did you make a mistake not making it about delegates as opposed to states in some of the the the, the March contests? No, absolutely not. We um, we we made a, a strategic decision, which I think was the right decision. Uh, the Senate made a decision to uh, uh, focus on. Uh, trying to win some statewide contests in order to, you know, deal with the sort of uh, a media narrative about how he couldn't win. Uh, we certainly did on, on March 1st. You know, he won five or four of the five states that he was uh, targeting. Massachusetts, we lost by just a few votes. Um, and those were states all across the country, from Oklahoma to Minnesota to Colorado. So, um, you know, I think the strategy was right. We knew that the calendar, the way it was set up, clearly favored the secretary at the beginning. There's no doubt about it. I mean, she was... First Lady of Arkansas for over a decade, or you know, her husband, the son of the South, um, you know, had very strong political ties throughout the South. So we knew that the South would be a, a difficult sort of uh, uh, political landscape for us. Uh, and we also understood that the back half of the calendar uh, after March 15th was going to be much more favorable uh, to uh, Bernie Sanders. And uh, you know, and that's sort of borne out by the fact that he's won seven of the last eight uh, contests. All right, Jeff Weaver, campaign manager for Bernie Sanders. Before you go, one last question, a really straightforward one. Sure. Will Bernie Sanders support Hillary Clinton if she wins the nomination? He has said over and over again that he will support the Democratic nominee uh, in November, and we would obviously expect the secretary to do the same. Even a nominee that he uh, just last night said was unqualified to be president? Well, look, whatever, whatever problems Secretary Clinton has in terms of her policies, 
And uh, obviously, uh, you know, Senator Sanders believes there are many. Uh, compared to Cruz or Trump or Mitt Romney or whoever else the Republicans are going to put up, uh, it's not really a contest. All right, Jeff Weaver, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you again soon. You got it. Take care. Thanks. So there you have it, Rick. Uh, I, it sounds like uh, certainly Bernie Sanders will support Hillary Clinton, but that race, it, it, it's going to be a lot harder for the Democrats to unify behind their nominee than, than we would have thought. Well, uh, now you, now it's not just the rhetoric, but the, the concept that, that Jeff is talking about here and the campaign is talking about, they're going to go through, we, we already, I think Democrats have come to terms with the fact they're going to go all the way through the end of voting, June 7th, California, it's the biggest cache of delegates. Actually, I think there's another contest a couple days later in the District of Columbia. So we're going to go through the, the beginning of June. But I think there was a presumption that that would be the point, unlike the Republican side, that that would be the point where Democrats can finally unite behind their front runner. If now Jeff is talking about explicitly saying, if she doesn't clinch outright, just based on pledge delegates, not using the 15 percent or so delegates who are the super delegates, then he will contest the convention. That means you've got six more weeks of, of drama and uh, maybe not quite chaos, but certainly discussion and angst over the Democratic nomination. And then the potential for a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of unease and question marks on the floor, even if she has it locked away functionally. And, you know, I mean, the superdelegates include people like Bill Clinton, who are not, you know, some of them are not, there's no hey, let's chance not forget, that they Bernie go. Sanders is a superdelegate, Rick, okay? I mean, Bernie Sanders is a superdelegate, too. Well, I guess that, I guess you can, you can count <laughs> that one for him then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, no, but, 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 but the idea that those superdelegates are suddenly going to decide that they're going to switch to Sanders seems yeah. to be, uh, uh, not if she to... has the most delegates, but, but the fact that they'd still be dealing with that vote even and, and, and having to take that roll call is not what Democrats bargain for. Yeah. Now, on the Republican side, of course, it's going to be a lot messier. Uh, and I want to, I, you know what I want to do here before we, uh, we, we, we sign off powerhouse politics? I want to go down south, and I mean really down south, to the Virgin Islands, the United States Virgin Islands, which, Rick, as you know, uh, USVI has nine Republican delegates. They've been elected, and they're all uncommitted. These could be the power brokers. These could be the people that choose who the Republican nominee is, and we have one of them on the line right now. John Yob, elected delegate to the Republican convention from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Mr. Yob, are you with us? I'm here. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing great, but it's rainy and cold in uh, in Washington, D.C., so we're— And thanks uh, for letting us use the Caribbean music to get yeah, us in yeah, the mood. Yeah. That, was, that was, by the way, that, that was Rick playing that. He's uh, he's He's been practicing for some time. <laughs> Calypso. Um, well, it's 81 so, and sunny here on St. John, so I'd encourage you to come visit sometime. So uh, you you are um, you, you got yourself elected from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, we, we understand there's a little bit of a contest down there. Uh, uh, the the chairman, the Republican chairman down there, is trying to uh, to get a different slate of delegates and, and push you out. But but right now it looks like you would be coming to Cleveland as as one of the most powerful players in in all of this. Yeah, the, the dispute committee ruled last Friday unanimously to seat the delegates who indeed won the most votes. And so I'm very confident that I'll be an uncommitted delegate in Cleveland. And, and you actually wrote the book on all of this. I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I wrote I a mean, book. I mean, literally. Called, uh, if I can do a shameless plug, plug it's yeah. called Chaos, the Outsider's Guide to a Contested Republican National Convention. Uh, and it essentially documents uh, how the convention will play out, what the history is of contested conventions, and who the key players are and what the key delegations are. 
So, John, first of all, how did you see this coming? Were you counting on this degree of chaos when you when you published this back in February? Did you see this kind of split coming, or is it just the, the a function of the rules themselves? Yeah, no, I've, I've thought for a long time that this was likely to be a contested convention. I, I outlined the reasons why in the book, you know, sort of diversification of media, decentralization of power uh, within the party, the rise of the outsider side of the spectrum, the proliferation of online fundraising. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons why the diversification of the field, sort of a flavor of ice cream for everyone. There's a whole host of reasons that why we are where we are, but I've, I've felt for a long time that we were headed towards a contested convention. Now, now, one reason why uh, you're uh, you were challenged is, is you're you're uh, you're from Michigan. Um, you, you've only recently uh, moved down to, uh, to to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Did you did you make this move in part thinking about uh, about doing just what you did, which is you know getting elected as one of these uncommitted delegates? Well, we've been coming to the Virgin Islands for a long time. So my wife and I have been coming here since 2009. Uh, we decided in 2011 to eventually move down here. We started making offers on houses in 2011, made roughly a dozen offers on houses be between 2011 and 2015, and finally closed on our house and put our children in school down here in November of 2015. So it's been a long-term project in terms of moving down to the Virgin Islands. Um, but obviously, once I got here, I realized that there was potential to uh, select an uh, unaffiliated slate. And I think it gives the Virgin Islands a great opportunity to have unaffiliated delegates headed to Cleveland. Because you, you are a political activist. You in, in Michigan, you, you helped uh, with the uh, Rand Paul campaign, correct? Well, I was uh, I was John McCain's national political director in 2008. I was Rand Paul's national political director in 2016. I was Rick Santorum's national delegate director in 2012, and I uh, my consulting firm ran the races for governor, lieutenant governor, and most of the other Republicans up in Michigan. Okay, so John Yob, uh, elected delegate from U.S. Virgin Islands, who are you going to support in Cleveland? <laughs> I'm still an unaffiliated delegate. I'm still neutral. I I haven't taken sides yet. How how uh, forgive me, but how is that possible? I mean, this is not uh, <laughs> there are not a lot of undecided Republicans out there at this point. Uh, you know that's fair, um, but I was a, a key person in Rand Paul's campaign, and and so uh, you know I was uh, I was for Rand Paul until he got out of the race. Then now, I, now I've been focused and committed on being an unaffiliated delegate, and, and frankly, I think I I need to remain uh, neutral for uh, at least a little while longer because I did run as an unaffiliated delegate. What are you being offered? Is, has anyone said anything yet? Did you get an ambassadorship yet or uh, you know, hotel costs? Free trip to the Virgin Islands? the Ritz here in Cleveland? You already live in the Virgin Islands, so they can't offer you a Caribbean house. But what, what, does anything come your way yet? What are you expecting? What have you gotten? Uh, no, you know, I mean, I, I'm a political consultant. I, I have some successful technology companies, and so I'm, I'm not really asking for anything. Uh, it's not a matter of, of wanting something in return for my vote. It's really not. Um, if I wanted a position or uh, or something like that, I could I could probably get it on one of the campaigns. So that that's not uh, what I'm angling for at all. I'm just uh, angling to uh, represent the Virgin Islands as an unaffiliated delegate. Okay, but who's reached out to you? Have you heard from the Trump folks? Have you heard from the Cruz folks? Have you heard from the Kasich folks? Has Paul Ryan's secret campaign committee uh, reached out to you? What, what who, who's talking to you? Who have you talked to? I mean, I talked to all the campaigns. I've talked to all three of them. I talked to all three of them regularly. Um, frankly, I'd be talking to all three of them regularly, if, even if I wasn't an unaffiliated delegate, just because I have you know friends in key positions on on the campaigns. Um, but, so, but at but what I, level? Of, I'm sorry. But at what level? Who, when you say talking to, are you talking to you know senior people at the campaign? Have you talked to the candidates themselves yet? 
Uh, who, I'm not going to I'm not going to delve into the private conversations that I have with the campaigns. I don't think that's fair to any of the campaigns, but uh, it's fair to say that I'm that I'm talking to the campaigns at the appropriate level. So, John, there's already been controversy over the uh, over your seating, uh, but what, there's going to be, we presume, a fight over delegations. There will be a fight over rules. What's the one thing that you'll be watching based on your research and based on your role here that that could determine? Is there something in the in the rules committee or in the committee on contests that that could be kind of the shadow uh, part of the of the campaign here in Cleveland. Absolutely, you know the the my book was the first piece of journalism or book to ever classify the states based on the manner in which they select their delegates rather than the order in which they select their delegates. Everyone else always talks about the order of the uh, of the process or maybe the size of the delegation, but very few people ever talked about uh, the manner in which delegates are selected, and that's critically important because uh, a delegate who is selected uh, through a balloting process in, say, a congressional district in Illinois is far different than a delegate who's selected at a state convention in, say, Georgia or Michigan, which is far different than a delegate who is selected by the campaign in, say, New Hampshire. So the manner in which delegates are selected is critically important. Obviously, it's also important to keep an eye on the uh, free agent delegations of uh, American Samoa, Guam, Virgin Islands, North Dakota, Wyoming, uh, Colorado, and to some degree, Louisiana and Pennsylvania. Um, Ultimately, the most important thing to keep an eye on is uh, the selection of rules committee and credentials committee members. There's going to be credentials fights across the country. It happens even when the race isn't contested. It's sure going to happen when the race is contested. So there's going to be all kinds of credentials fights, and there's obviously going to be a lot of clarifications in the rules. And uh, the campaigns who do a better job of placing people on those credentials committee and rules committees are going to be the campaigns uh, who ultimately are successful on the floor of the convention. Are the campaigns offering to help arrange travel, help pay for travel and hotels and all of that in Cleveland? You know, I haven't seen evidence of that yet, but I would be amazed if they didn't do that. Um, you know, if you have a delegate who can't afford to get go to Cleveland, then I think uh, providing them a hotel room is something that any campaign would be more than happy to do. Um, I have not heard any evidence of that, but I'd be surprised if they didn't. Um, at state conventions, you know, there's two congruent examples to think about a contested convention. Obviously, we haven't had one in modern times, or at least a multi-ballot convention since 1948, and a contested one since 76. But the most congruent examples are two things. You have state conventions that take place across the country. There's going to be a big one in Michigan this weekend. There was a big one in North Dakota last weekend. And so those are obviously critically important, uh, especially as it relates to uh, selecting sinos, supporters in name only, sort of these phantom delegates that are talked about. Also in terms of the selection of the Rules Committee uh, members. Uh, but but uh, they're they're critically important, and they're a pretty good example of what could happen on the convention floor. And, and in state conventions, it's a normal practice that delegates who can't afford to attend the state convention, um, they're not paid, but their expenses are paid. They're given a hotel room or whatever. It's a normal process in state conventions. The, the other thing is, uh, the other congruent example is RNC chairman elections, especially when it comes to like multi-ballot uh, activities. So there aren't a lot of multi-ballot uh, party elections to look to, but there there is in the RNC chairman's election. So there's been three or four contested RNC chairman elections in recent years, and those give a, a pretty congruent example of how a multi-ballot election would work. John, how 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 early do you plan on getting to Cleveland? When is the action really going to start, and uh, what what is the what is the kind of ramp up phase going to look like this summer? Yeah, I would assume I'll be there a couple weeks or three weeks early. Um, it sort of depends on the scheduling of the committees and then ultimately what committee I end up serving on. 
Uh, we'll be having our uh, committee assignment uh, selection in the Virgin Islands very soon, so I'll know what committee I'll, I'll, I'll be on, and then we'll be looking to the RNC to see exactly what their com- what the committee schedule is. Um, but I'm guessing roughly two weeks out. Uh, I uh, helped run political operations for McCain at the 2008 convention, so I was there about six weeks before uh, the convention in Minneapolis. But I'm guessing I'll be there probably three weeks before the convention this time. All right, John Yab, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands delegate to the Republican convention. Thank you for joining us. Uh, can you tell us just before you go, when, when are you going to make up your mind and hopefully we can have you here on Powerhouse Politics to talk about it? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when, but if you want me back on when I do that, I'd be happy to come on. Okay, great. Thank you very much, and uh, and we're jealous. Uh, enjoy seeing John. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We'll see you. So, Rick, there was uh, there was one of those power brokers, and you know, <laughs> uh, you know, talking to Jeff Rowe, you you remember uh, talking to him in Iowa, where, where they had that you know incredible operation because Iowa, you know, Re- Republican caucus is a relatively small uh, you know universe of voters. They identify them. They 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 contact them regularly. But I mean, with, with these delegates, the universe is tiny. I mean, 25, less than 2,500 delegates, you know, and, and, and you can bracket a bunch of those and, and, and know that they're voting elsewhere. But this is the universe of delegates that are your people or could be your people. I mean, these people can be not just called or have their doors knocked on, but they can be taken out for steak dinner every night in Cleveland. And they're regular people. I mean, this is not this is not the smoke filled, you know, power broker rooms. These are not, you know, lob. Um, there's not lobbyists. Most of them, despite what John Yav is saying about his own biography, most of them aren't even political strategists. They are local political activists. They love the game. They wear funny hats and pins, and they enjoy coming to Cleveland and seeing their buddies. And they pay their own way. And this this phenomenon, uh, this term that John used, sinos. We know rhinos, Republicans in, the, in yes. name only, but now we have to meet sinos, supporters in name only. We asked, uh, of course, Jeff Rowe about how many uh, how many Trump delegates are actually Cruz supporters. He doesn't know the number yet, but that will be significant. Just because, and by the way, he will delegate, know that number. He will know that number, right? Oh, sure. They, if he's if they're doing the kind of work which I think they're doing, and Cruz seems to be doing a way better job of this than either of his main rivals right now, either the Trump or Kasich campaign, actually working the delegates, he will know exactly who's with him on the second ballot. And this is the phenomena that makes things so interesting in a contested convention. Yes, Trump will have most the most amount of delegates, but that doesn't mean he has the most amount of supporters. Those delegates, most of them are bound only on that first ballot. And the only thing they're bound to do, the only thing they're bound to do is to cast their vote one time for Donald Trump. They can vote against him in rules committee or procedural matters. They can even support a rule that says Donald Trump shouldn't be president or can't be president. Uh, and they can support anyone they want uh, on the other ballots after they're unbound. So knowing who those people are, that's the game that's being played right now under the radar screen that is just as important, maybe more important than the voting that's going on. And if you listen to the Cruz people, it sure sounds like they have a more sophisticated operation, that they've been doing this for a long time. But I've got to tell you, uh, don't, don't think they're not doing this uh, over in Trump Tower right now. Uh, as you know, uh, Donald Trump has hired Paul Manafort, one of the few Republican strategists uh, who was actually there and involved the last time there was an open convention in 1976. Also, I can tell you, uh, having spoken uh, with uh, with senior people on the Trump campaign, that they are right now beginning a process of going after and courting uh, those delegates that are unbound on the first ballot. People like John Yob uh, are being contacted at a very high level uh, in, in, in the Trump campaign, and, and I am told to expect that Trump himself will meet with, uh, with, with many of these delegates. You can imagine them being flown into New York, brought into Trump Tower, you know, given the personal tour by the Donald himself. 
Uh, and that would be a very enticing, uh, you know, very enticing thing, I would imagine, to many of these. It's a lot more, you know, than what Ted Cruz or, or John Kasich can offer. If these guys are going to be, especially the couple hundred who are unbound on the first ballot, they are going to be the prettiest girls at the school. And uh, they are going to have all manner of attention showered upon them. Uh, and th- this is going to be the big story of the summer in the run-up to, to Cleveland, uh, where I am right now. If there is not a someone with that clear majority, it is unfathomable. It's amazing. Uh, it's just it's just an incredible thing to to see wit to be able to witness right now that we're actually talking about this kind of person by person fight. There are nine of them in the northern Marianas Islands, and I I defy you right now to find the northern Marianas Islands on a map. See how see how long that would take no, you to do. I'm not trying. I'm not trying. Okay, Sorry. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and and I I am told. That uh, uh, that there's already been somebody uh, associated with the Trump campaign on the ground in the Northern Marianas Islands to meet in person with those uh, nine nine uh, delegates. So this is going to be quite a process. We will follow it every step of the way here on Powerhouse Politics, Rick. Uh, I, no, no doubt. I mean, we should definitely we should take John up on that offer and do a showdown in uh, St. John. What do you think? Are we in? Uh, I, I'm I am take the show all on the road. In. I am all in, especially on a day like today. I want to. Thank our guests and uh, thank everybody for tuning into Powerhouse Politics. Come and join us again next week. Gotta love the music. 